Hello, and welcome to The Hungry Historian, the history podcast with a culinary twist. My name is Chef Money, and as always, I will be your personal purveyor of pastime and palatable provisions. Believe it or not, but this little operation that I run here is, well, kind of a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants one. And despite wanting to have a set schedule as far as subject matter and recipes go, something that, well, would make my podcasting life a whole lot easier, mind you, a lot of the time, what usually winds up happening is that I get a sudden inspiration for an episode, a lot like what happens in my home kitchen and is the primary reason, much to the chagrin of the hungry herstorian, that I rarely, i.e. never, meal prep. And that's what happened with today's episode. I had a couple ideas that I'd been kicking around, and then thanks in part to some quality father-son bonding time, I mean video game time, it came to me. Pirates. Fun fact, and a literal fun one. The game we were playing was Assassin's Creed Black Flag. This is a game that I played the absolute shit out of when it first came out. And when I saw that it was on sale in the Xbox Marketplace for 90% off a week ago, well, I couldn't download it fast enough. It's an absolute ride of a game, and it makes me long for the days of playing Sid Meier's Pirates. That's right, Pirates. One of the most overly romanticized area of history, despite it kind of being an overall cesspool of a time to be alive. But you can't just talk about Pirates, or at least I won't, because it would be like an eight-hour discussion. And that's just on the so-called golden age of piracy. So I called an audible and decided to just target a specific swashbuckler. Don't worry, we're still going to chop it up about a pirate. Well, a pirate, if you're from Spain or Portugal. If you're from England, you would refer to him as either a legend, a hero, a slave trader, or the fancy name for illegal legal being in quotations, pirate, a privateer. And there was no privateer more famous than the man we will be discussing today, Sir Francis Drake. Now, if I had a hard enough time coming up with the subject for today's episode, recipe-wise, I had a nearly impossible time coming up with a tie-in. My initial reaction was to do duck. You know, duck. Mallard, another word for mallard is a drake, get it? But I don't like duck. So then it was like, well, you know, he's English. He spent his time on the sea, right? Well, let's just do some fish and chips. But to me, doing fish and chips for, you know, an English sailor is kind of a cop out. And then it hit me right while I was finishing up my notes. Portobello's. And you'll see why later. Anyway, here's the list of ingredients that you're going to need in order to grill up some of your own privateer portobellos. You're going to want to have four or more portobello caps, you know, depending on how many people you're feeding. And you're going to lightly rinse them because mushrooms are essentially a big sponge. And just like Marilyn Manson, you're going to want to remove the ribs. You know, the underside of the mushroom cap, that kind of frilly looking stuff. Just take a spoon and lightly remove all of that. You're also going to need two to three medium tomatoes, diced, a quarter cup of green onions, sliced, half a cup of feta, crumbled. You could use matzah or goat cheese here as well. 
you're gonna want a tablespoon of fresh parsley, minced, a teaspoon of oregano, about two to three cloves of garlic, minced, a quarter cup of olive oil, and salt and pepper to taste. First and foremost, what is the difference between a privateer and a pirate? Well, you could say that a privateer was a pirate with papers, something like a letter of mark, or as was so often with the case for our boy Francis, a royal commission. As the name suggests, privateers were private individuals commissioned by a government to carry out quasi-military activities. They would sail in privately owned armed ships, robbing merchant vessels and pillaging settlements belonging to a rival country. By using privateers, states could project maritime power beyond the capabilities of their regular navies. But this didn't come without certain trade-offs. As privateering was generally, and by generally I mean considerably, a more lucrative occupation than military service, it tended to divert manpower and resources away from regular navies of the same states that were employing these privateers. Similar to piracy, because that's what it is, it's just painting over rust by using a prettier term, privateering could be quite the shady enterprise, and this accounts for some of the lexical overlap with the word pirate. Privateers sometimes, <clears throat> often, went beyond their commissions, attacking vessels that didn't belong to the targeted country. Well, compared to piracy, this extracurricular raiding and pillaging was indistinguishable from it. At other times, known pirates would operate with the implied encouragement of a government, but without the necessary written legal authorization that was usually given to privateers. In settings and events where these practices were common, the line between privateer and pirate was easily blurred. I really could, and seeing as how I have no set lineup or schedule, probably will talk about other pirateers as this show goes on. You may have even heard of a few of the more famous names. Names like Sir Walter Raleigh, Captain James Kidd, or even the renowned Edward Tech, a.k.a. Blackbeard. But until then, let's focus on our boy Drake. The original Champagne Papu was born in Tavistock, which is in the county of Devon in England. And similar to some Dominican-born baseball players, no formal date of birth is known, but it's speculated to be somewhere between 1539 and 1544, with 1541 being the most likely and most believed. Francis was the eldest of the 12 sons born to Edward Drake, a tenant farmer, and his wife Mary. They also had at least one daughter, Elizabeth, but I didn't really come across any more during my research. Drake was more than likely named after his godfather, Francis Russell, the second Earl of Bedford, who also just happened to be the owner of the land where his father worked and that his family lived. While he was still young, Drake's family would move from Devon to Kent, allegedly to avoid religious persecution, but this appears to be a cover for the actual reason of their relocation, Edward being sought for assault and robbery. Seeming to have turned his life around in Kent, Drake's father would obtain an appointment with the King's Navy as a minister, because nobody who works for the church could ever do a bad thing. He would later become ordained as a deacon. 
Whether or not Edward did change for the better, it was his father who helped Francis receive an apprenticeship with a neighbor who owned a bark, which is a type of sailing vessel. Some historians have even speculated that Drake may have been an illegitimate child, and this was the reason that his father was so gung-ho to give him the old heave-ho. But nothing as far as I read was concrete. Either way, this neighbor was so taken with the young Drake that he bequeathed to him the bark as he had had no family or heir to pass it on to. At least that's the way that some of the material I had read had presented it. Other accounts say that the ship was already owned by the man that Drake would work and train with next, William Hawkins. Hawkins began training Drake about the finer points of seafaring at the age of 18. From 1560 to 1568, Drake would serve in a fairly humble capacity as a seaman with William Hawkins's cousin, John, over a series of voyages. Now, they traded mainly cloth and manufactured goods, although there was said to be some contraband. I mean, with the lure of piracy always present, it wouldn't take much for a man to be tempted. And, well, John Hawkins wasn't built of stone. So, he may have brought home a few cargoes of gold and ivory and spices that may or may not have just fallen off of the back of a truck. Or, I mean, ship. Fun fact. Like Drake... John Hawkins would also be a privateer and a slave trader. In fact, old Johnny Hawkins is considered the first Englishman to profit from the triangle trade, which were goods and raw material going to England and Europe, and these countries turning it into manufactured goods and textiles and would send it to Africa, and then they would just cart up a bunch of you know black people in Africa and send them over to America to be slaves there, and then lather, rinse, and repeat. Wanting to break into the West African slave trade was a lot harder than one would think. I mean, it's not like selling lemonade. Selling a human is harder. And at this time, the slave trade to the Americas was an effective Portuguese monopoly. Now, this didn't deter Long John Hawkins, and in 1562, he would finance his first venture into the world of human trafficking. Unsurprisingly, by the following year, he was an incredibly wealthy piece of shit. And although there is no record of Drake being present on that first endeavor, it is known that he was present for the second one. The money for these exploits, to exploit, didn't come out of the pockets of Drake or even Hawkins. Like a modern business, it came from investors. The most notable one being Queen Elizabeth I, who invested in the expedition by providing the ship Jesus de Lubeck in lieu of money. Despite another successful human shopping trip to Africa, after the second expedition, the queen ordered Hawkins to forego a third. Obviously, when the queen asks you to do something, you listen, and that is what he did. He agreed that he wouldn't go. But then he uncrossed his fingers from behind his back and sent his fleet under the command of John Lavelle to do his bidding anyway. And as far as Francis' involvement on these trips, oh, he was definitely there. But why did Queen Bess suddenly decide to put an end to her cash cow of human cargo? I can tell you, it wasn't because of a change of heart or decency. No, it was because the Portuguese and Spanish were well aware that someone had been into their Kool-Aid. So they had sent ambassadors to England in order to lodge a formal complaint to the Queen. Now, 
something that the English have always been known for, I mean, as long as I've been alive and reading most modern history, was having a strong and formidable navy. But this wasn't the case in the 16th century. At this time, the kingdom of a combined Spain and Portugal were the big dogs. They were the major seafaring powers and held established trade monopolies like rum, sugar, molasses, and the West African slave trade. In contrast, jolly old England was small, poor, engaged in civil war, and religious division. Hence Elizabeth's decision not to send the voyage. Or at least she thought. So, without the Queen's blessing, from 1566 to 1567, Drake, under Lavelle and sailing Hawkins' fleet, would travel up and down the western coast of Africa, attacking Portuguese settlements and slave ships. From there, they would then take this cargo of enslaved Africans to the Spanish plantations in the Americas. But this voyage wasn't as successful as the others had been, as they didn't sell all of their cargo, and therefore 90 people would end up being released. Aside from their lack of financial success, the expedition had been an arduous one. They had battled storms, Spanish hostility, and unsurprisingly, African resistance. With the return trip looming on their horizon, they had sought shelter in the port of San Juan de Alua, modern-day Veracruz, Mexico, in order to make repairs. While Drake and the fleet were still negotiating with the locals about getting some supplies in order to perform some repairs, the newly appointed Viceroy of New Spain arrived, and while negotiations were still taking place, the Spanish fleet opened fire on the English. All but two of the English ships would be lost, and hundreds of English seamen were abandoned. I mean, that joke kind of just writes itself, right? Drake escaped this by swimming to one of the few remaining ships. Now, it's said that his hostility towards the Spanish started with this incident. Quote, Whatever the truth about this episode, there is no doubt that it turned Drake's ambitions into a new channel. Thereafter, Spain and all things Spanish became his prey. Slaving and trading voyages no longer interested him. End quote. Upon his return to England, Drake was accused by Hawkins, whom he thought had been lost at the Battle of San Juan de Lua, and Hawkins accused Drake of both desertion and stealing the treasure that they had accumulated. Now, these would be major accusations to be thrown around at this time. Adamantly, Drake denied these accusations and asserted that he had distributed all the profits among the crew and had only left when it was believed that Hawkins had been lost. And apparently, other eyewitness accounts of the aftermath seemed to exonerate Drake. That's why we're going to keep talking about Drake and not mention his execution right here. But needless to say, well, Drake and Hawkins' partnership ended right about now. So after splitting with Hawkins, Drake would make plans for his first major independent venture. Beginning in 1572, the same year he would receive his first commission from the Queen, Drake would begin his unofficial war on the Spanish. He planned to attack Isthmus of Panama, also known as Terra Firm in Spanish or Spanish Main in English. This was the point where the silver and gold from Peru landed and was sent overland to the Caribbean, 
From there, the galleons would pick all of this up at the town of Nombre de Dios. Remember, there's no Panama Canal here. And the Inca Empire had only been defeated like 35 years ago. So there's an ample amount of gold and silver and jewels to be, well, you know, snatched up from the Spanish. Drake sails in here with two ships carrying 73 men, the Pasha, which is 70 tons, and the Swan, which only weighed about 25 tons. His first attempt was a raid in July of 1572. Here he formed an alliance with Cimarrons, who were formerly enslaved Africans in Panama who had escaped their Spanish masters. And while they would be successful in taking the town, they'd be forced to withdraw when his men noticed that Drake was bleeding profusely from a wound. Now, they may have saved his life, but they would go on to lose the treasure. Drake would wind up staying in this area for the next years, raiding Spanish ships, and waiting for his next time to take a crack at the town of Nombre de Dios. So a little over a year later, in March 1573, Drake would successfully capture a Spanish silver train, and acquire over 20 tons of silver and gold. And when I say train, I'm speaking of a supply train of horses and mules, mainly mules, being led by men, and not the locomotives that is obviously more associated with the term. Here, among Drake and his men on this raid, were a handful of French privateers and a man named Guillaume Le Testu, a buccaneer, who would be wounded and eventually captured and beheaded. Now, the reason I mention Latestu is so I can give you this fun fact. The other terms that tend to be tossed around when describing pirates and privateers are Corsair and Buccaneer. And aside from being the inspiration for sports teams and car companies, both terms have very specific meanings. The term Corsair, for instance, is specific for those who practice pirate in the Mediterranean while the term buccaneer was specific to those who operated in the Caribbean and the Pacific coast of Central America. The name is derived from the French word bouquin, which was a grill for smoking meat, and was first applied to French wild game hunters who lived in western Hispaniola in the early 17th century. As you can imagine, it's pretty hard work to transport 20 tons of gold and silver today Imagine trying to do it 450 years ago. In order to traverse the 18 miles through the jungle and back to their landing boats, Drake and his men buried the majority of their take and headed off, carrying as much gold as they possibly could. With the Spanish not far behind, they arrived at the beach where they had left their boats, only to find that the boats were gone. Let's set at this moment, when all seemed lost, that Drake rallied his men. With their landing craft destroyed, they buried more of their treasure and built a raft. Drake then took two volunteers, used the newly constructed raft to sail some 10 miles along the surf-lashed coast in order to retrieve their flagship. Well, according to the legend of Drake, upon seeing his bedraggled appearance, the men on the ship assumed the worst of their venture. Allegedly, Drake took this time to play a little joke on the men. You know, it's not like the Spanish were right on their heels or anything. Might as well have a little joke. So at first, looking downhearted to add to their worry, he then laughed before pulling a necklace of pure Spanish gold from around his neck and saying, Our voyage is made, lads. 
they would return to Plymouth on August the 9th, 1573. Arriving back in England, Drake would discover that the Queen had recently signed a truce with King Philip II of Spain, and therefore was unable to formally acknowledge Drake's achievements and give him some props. It wouldn't be needed, though, as, well, he was already a hero in England and a pirate in Spain. In 1575, two years after returning successfully from looting the Spanish, one of the darker marks against Drake would occur, and that's saying something seeing his history as a slave trader. It's known that Drake was present for and assisted in some capacity during the Rattlin Island Massacre in Ireland. Acting on the instructions of Sir Henry Sidney and the Earl of Essex, Sir John Norris and Drake laid siege to Rathlin Castle. Despite surrendering, Norris's troops killed all of the 200 defenders and more than 400 civilian men, women, and children of Clan Macdonnell. Meanwhile, while maybe not having a hand in the actual slaughter of the surrendering and the innocents, Drake was given the task of preventing any Gaelic Irish or Scottish reinforcements from reaching the island. Therefore, the remaining leader of the Gaelic defense against English power, a man with an all-time great handle, Sorley Boy MacDonald, was forced to stay on the mainland. In 1574, a year before the massacre at Rathlin Castle occurred, a man named Sir Richard Grenville had submitted a proposal to the Privy Council. These were the people who advised the Queen. His idea was to take a single ship in order to attack the Spanish and their treasure ships and attempt to establish a colony in South America. From there, they could sail to the South Sea, a.k.a. the Pacific, in hopes of finding a route to the Spice Islands and Terra Australis Incognita. Elizabeth initially accepted this proposal, but was forced to rescind it a year later when England was trying to rebuild its relationship with Spain. In 1577, Drake was chosen as the leader of an expedition that was intended to pass around South America through the Strait of Magellan, and explore the coast that lay beyond. That, or he just straight up usurped Grenville's idea. Whatever the reason was, it didn't matter. The expedition was backed by the Queen herself, and Grenville would go on to swear that he would never serve with Drake in any capacity. Fun fact, Richard Grenville was the admiral of the seven-strong fleet that brought English colonists to Sir Walter Raleigh's Roanoke Island colony in 1585. The Roanoke Island colony is best known for the mysterious disappearance of all of the colonists in 1590. The only trace of them left was the word Croatone that had been carved into a nearby tree. This daring expedition could not have been better suited for Drake. He had official approval to benefit himself and the Queen, as well as to cause as much damage to the Spaniards as possible. When he accepted this commission, it would be the first occasion in which he first met the Queen face to face. It is said that Drake heard from the Queen's own heavily cosmetically covered lips that she, quote, would gladly be revenged on the King of Spain for divers, numerous, injuries that I have received. End quote. They sailed from Plymouth on November 15, 1577, 
and immediately hit bad weather, seeking refuge at Falmouth in Cornwall before returning back to Plymouth for repairs. A month later, on December 13th, they set sail again with Drake aboard the Pelican. The fleet was made up of four other ships carrying 164 men, and they would add a sixth, a Portuguese merchant ship, the Santa Maria, that they captured off of the Cape Verde Islands. Drake renamed it the Mary, which I swear is the only other female name in this entire story, other than Elizabeth. Not only did they go on to add the ship, but they also added its captain, a man named Nono da Silva, who had considerable experience in South American waters. Keep in mind, Portugal had been in South American waters since the days of Pedro Alvarez Cabral, who claimed Brazil for Portugal over 70 years earlier. Fun fact, one of the men who served with Drake aboard the Pelican was a maroon named Diego. Similar to Cimarron's, a maroon was a descendant of enslaved Africans who had escaped the Spanish, and he had been with Drake during the Silver Train raid. In addition to speaking Spanish, which made him very useful as an interpreter when you're fighting against the Spanish, he was also described as a capable shipbuilder. Drake had him employed as his servant, and he was paid a wage, just like the rest of the crew. I mean, given Drake's, you know, past with being a slaver, could have gone a whole lot worse. While crossing the Atlantic, the fleet would suffer considerably, forcing Drake to scuttle both of the Christopher and the Swan due to a loss of men. They would finally make landfall in the Bay of St. Julian, in what is now Argentina. This was the exact same spot where Magellan had stopped nearly a half century earlier and killed some mutineers. In fact, there were still signs of them in the form of sun-bleached skeletons sitting inside gibbet cages. It was at St. Julian that they discovered that the Mary had rotten timbers. So they decided to burn her instead of replace them. And all that wood would come in handy when Drake decided that they would winter in that location instead of attempting to sail through the Strait of Magellan during the winter seasons. And it's with the men wintering at the Bay of St. Julian in Argentina that we're going to stop this point of the episode. Originally, I had kind of banked on this being a one-shot deal, but the further and further I got into it, especially the part we're at now and the whole circumnavigation of the globe, well, I didn't really want you guys to have to listen to me talk for a straight hour. So you're going to have to tune into our second part of this episode in order to get the directions on how to make your mushrooms, aka your privateer portobellos, and to find out the exciting conclusion of the life and legacy of Sir Francis Drake. Well, as always, I've been Chef Money. Thank you for coming in and listening to me, not cooking, just listening today. As always, you can follow along with me on Instagram at Hungry underscore Historian. We're the Hungry Historian on YouTube, where all my recipe videos are uploaded. And we're on the Twittersphere at the Hungry Histo One. Then again, you can always just reach us by a good old fashioned email, historianhungry at gmail.com. Remember, quests and recommendations are always welcome. Well, until next episode, cheers. <laughs>